There are a lot of scary things that we hear in the world today. I mean, there's all kinds of scary reports. Of course, there uh, are scary things happening on the international stage. You know, we talk about countries and even wars and so forth going on. Very scary. We think about political corruption, political intrigue in our own country. Kind of scary to think about some of the things that are going on right here in the United States of America. And then, of course, there's financial crisis. We've all talked about that. You know, prices are soaring. Uh, Some of the fellows were talking just this morning about how much they spent to fill up the tanks in their pickup trucks. It's a, it's a major investment to go to the gas station these days. Um, and then, of course, all the medical stuff that goes around. And, and I actually think there is some intention in the way that some of the medical news is reported intentionally to scare us, to make us afraid. So there's just a lot of scary stuff going on, and I know that you know that. Tonight we want to talk about something different but also something that is really very scary. And I hope that I can convince you that this is a scary thing indeed. Uh, At a church here in Middle Tennessee, a preacher that we know, many of you know the preacher who preached this, he has actually preached here on on occasion uh, in the past. If I named his name, you would know him. He preached a sermon recently on music in worship, uh, especially emphasizing instrumental music in worship. Uh, It was rather a long sermon, but this was his summary slide. This is the slide that concluded his sermon on instrumental music. He said, through his silence, God hasn't given us authority to use instruments in the New Testament. I agree with that, don't you? He says, do not presume that we have authority for such in the New Testament. I agree with that. Bottom line, he says, let us speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. I agree with that. But he gave his sermon away with this statement right here. He said, do not presume God will eternally condemn those who use instruments of music in worship. And so I was good with this, and I was good with this, and I was good with this, but I thought this preacher gave away his entire case when he said, Do not presume that God will eternally condemn those who use instruments of music in worship. Uh, And so, again, that's a problem. That's a problem. The fatal flaw of this is that it misses the point about the silence of Scripture. He said, through silence, God has, hasn't or has not given us authority to use instruments of music and worship. That is correct. Silence does not authorize. But then he, he made the fatal flaw of saying, we can't presume that God will judge those who do so. Basically, he said, we cannot presume that God will judge those who violate the principles of Bible authority. And so our lesson tonight, based upon that scary report coming out of a church right here in Middle Tennessee, our our lesson tonight is to review and make sure we are completely committed to and fully understanding the notion of the silence of the Scriptures. What do we do when the Scriptures are silent? And that'll be our brief study tonight. I want to stop just here to thank everyone uh, for being here on this Sunday evening. We, we appreciate your diligence in coming back on Sunday night and the encouragement that you provide to all the rest of us. Thanks for being here. As we study about 
all things and about this subject in particular. If you have any questions, or even if you would potentially disagree with something we might say tonight, please bring that to my attention so we can clear that up. We'll sit down and open our Bibles and make sure that we've got everything just right from the Word of God. Thanks for being here tonight. Silence of the Scripture. I hope that you agree that this is not a new issue. Uh, this has actually been a thing that has been batted back and forth since early on in the days of, of the, the New Testament church. We could quote from Tertullian, who lived really just a generation after the inspired apostles. And Tertullian, who was a secular writer, not an inspired man, but he said, some say that the thing which is not forbidden is freely permitted. I should rather say that what has not been freely allowed is forbidden. And so obviously this was a point of some contention even in the second century A.D. Tertullian was right about this. He says, some are saying that if a thing is not specifically forbidden, then we're free to do it. He said, I think the opposite. I think Tertullian was right about that. We'll try to prove that in just a minute. A number of centuries later, Martin Luther, one of the principal reformers, uh, he, he sort of evolved his thinking on this question. He started out, I think, saying it properly. He said, whatever is without the word of God is by that very, fe- by that very fact against God. That sounds like a right statement. The next statement may be a little weaker, but I think probably still on track. Nothing ought to be set up without scriptural authority. Okay, we're real good with that if he stopped right there. But then he said, or if it is set up, it ought to be esteemed free and not necessary. I think he should have stopped right here and said we shouldn't set up anything that we don't have scriptural authority for. He said, well, but if you're going to set it up without authority, then it ought to be voluntary, not mandatory. No, we shouldn't set up anything without authority. And then he evolved even further to this statement. So these statements are a progression of time in the life of Martin Luther. He said, what is not against Scripture is for Scripture and Scripture for it. Basically saying, if the Scripture doesn't condemn it, we can do what we want. A really conservative preacher in that same time frame, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther Ulrich Zwingli said, practices not enjoined or taught in the New Testament should be unconditionally rejected. And so here was a man who was taking the conservative approach that we think is correct way back uh, in that time frame of the Reformation. And so again, this is not a new issue. This has been around really since the, the very beginnings of the church. How do we deal with this question of silence? When the scripture is silent, What should we do? How should we react to that? Does it authorize us? If the scripture is silent, we can do whatever we please. Or if the scripture is silent, are we restricted and prohibited to go further? I think this is the correct conclusion. And we're going to try to attempt to prove this. The correct conclusion is where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can do only those things which are authorized. Okay? So we think that's the right view, the correct view. And what I'd like to do is just spend a few minutes reminding us that that is the right view and, and, and emphasizing the reasons why it is right. Let's look to some Old Testament examples uh, and, and see what we can learn by looking at the way God dealt with people in that era. Obviously, we're not under that law, but we learned something about the way God dealt with people in that time frame. We could go all the way back 
to Genesis chapter 6 and talk about Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Another English version says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I think that's a really interesting expression, just as God commanded him. Well, we know that story of Noah pretty well, don't we? And we know, for instance, that when God instructed Noah to build the ark, he said, make the ark of gopher wood. And so he told him the kind of wood to use in building the ark. There's always been a lot of debate about what was gopher wood. We don't know. We don't have anything we call gopher wood today, at least not in our part of the world. Uh, A lot of people have speculated maybe it was some sort of a cypress or something, a kind of wood that would have withstood water for a long period of time. Maybe so. It doesn't really matter. Noah knew what gopher wood was, and he built the ark out of gopher wood. Now, notice that God didn't say anything about any other kind of wood. He did not, God did not say, build an ark of gopher wood, and by all means, do not use pine. Do not use oak. Do not use cherry. Do not use walnut. He didn't, he didn't mention other kinds of woods. He, he told him what to do. He specified what he wanted him to do. And he was silent about any other kind of wood on the ark. Would, if you were in Noah's shoes, would you have taken a chance and said, I, I know God said gopher wood, but I'll tell you, for this particular part of the ark, Pine would be really easier to work with. I think I'm going to use pine because God didn't say not to. He didn't say don't use pine. He didn't say not to. So I think I'm just going to take a chance here and use pine. Would you have done that? I don't think any of us would have done that, right? And nobody would have gone uh, taken that liberty. But there's a, there's a point there, right? There's a point about the silence of God. God didn't say not to. He just said what he wanted. And when he said what he wanted, that excludes everything else. Look at the uh, uh, instructions of Moses concerning the law that God gave to the children of Israel. Again, obviously this is not our law for today. But notice what God expected of the Israelites concerning the law that he gave them. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That's very plain, isn't it? And I don't think that we have to have any help in understanding that. Don't add to the word. Don't take from it. Now that would necessarily go to this question of things that God is silent about. If God has not given instruction on a matter, but we decide we can move forward, that we can, that, that we can take his silence as, as permission to do something that he didn't uh, command, uh, that would be adding to the word of God, wouldn't it? Uh, when God is silent, if I, if I include something that God has been silent about, I fail the test that Moses here stated for the children of Israel. Or still looking at some Old Testament examples. What about Nadab and Abihu? You know that story very well, right? From Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire from uh, before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Another English translation says, 
they authorized they they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. So the King James Version calls it strange fire. This version calls it unauthorized fire. The source for the fire to be used in the censers to burn the incense had been specified. And so when Nadab and Abihu uh, went to offer incense in their censers, they, they obtained their fire from an unauthorized source. God had told what he wanted. He hadn't specifically forbidden other sources of fire, uh, but he hadn't authorized it either. What do we learn about the silence of God from the case of Nadab and Abihu? Silence prohibited them to do what they did. Silence prohibited them to get fire from a strange source. The very familiar case of Nadab and Abihu, I think, makes it very clear. Don't you see what we're saying? And I know that you do. And then one more case. This is also a very familiar one. The the business of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. We remember that when the Ark of the Covenant was made, again, this was part of the instructions that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, building the tabernacle, building all the appurtenances of the tabernacle, building the Ark of the Covenant wherein was the, the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded later, some of the manna. Uh, but that Ark was, uh, it, it was a box. It wasn't a tremendously big box, but it was a box uh, with an elaborate lid on it, if we could just say, if we could describe it that way. But it was not to be touched by human hands. And so in order to carry it, how are you going to carry it if you can't touch it? Well, when it was constructed, as you well know, there were rings placed in the four corners and then staves or rods of wood would be run through those rings so that the ark could be picked up without ever touching it. That's how it was to be carried. And it was only to be carried by certain individuals. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the tribe of Levi then was thus specified, but notice no other tribe was mentioned or prohibited. Uh, The law did not say, by all means, don't let any of those of the tribe of Asher do this job. I didn't say that. Uh, don't, Don't let anyone from Naphtali have anything to do with carrying the Ark of the Covenant. It didn't say that. It just is that the Lord separated the tribe of Levi. He was silent about other tribes. Did his silence authorize those other tribes to get involved in carrying the Ark? No. We know that, right? We don't have any problem with that. That's just, actually, that's just common sense and, and simple logic, right? That when something is specified, other things are excluded. In First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2, David understood this. David correctly understood the limitations. David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath God chosen to carry the ark. And so King David understood the principle, didn't he? Even though no other tribe was mentioned, either for or against their involvement in carrying the ark, when God said, Tribe of Levi, King David concluded accurately that no one else should be involved in that work of transporting the Ark of the Covenant. Now, David was right there. 
But you know, you well know that David had his own problems in, in the matter of transporting the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning verse 3, they set the Ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And when they came to Nation's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Well, what's the problem here? Well, they were, they were transporting the ark in an unauthorized way, right? Now, I, I would encourage you if, you, if you have any doubt about this, I don't, I don't think it's a necessary exercise because I'm sure you already know, you can go back through that law of Moses and there's nothing, there's, there's nothing said, absolutely zero said about carrying the ark of God on a on an ox cart. It's just not in there. There's nothing mentioned about that. What is mentioned is that it's supposed to be transported by staves placed through these rings on the corners of the of the box, the ark of the covenant, so that no one would touch it. God told what he wanted. He was silent about anything else and and yet it's understood that because he was silent, the methodology used here that resulted in the death of Uzzah, it was unauthorized. God had been silent about that. Notice what David said subsequent to it. In, in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13, he said, The Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. Another version says we sought him not in the prescribed way. Uh, you know, King David and all the Israelites could have argued on this God didn't say not to carry the Ark of the Covenant on a, on a cart. He didn't say not to. We should have been all right on that because God didn't say not to. No. He didn't have to say not to. When he specified how it should be carried, that was enough. All right, so here I think are, are four cases of evidence from the Old Testament, from very familiar stories to us. This is not, we're not plowing new ground here, so to speak. You all know these stories. You know these statements very well. Why would we, why would we equivocate on this point? When we have taught and preached this principle forever, right? This has been well understood. Why are we getting soft on that question now? That's, that's, as I said at the outset, that's scary to me that we're getting soft on a very basic scriptural understanding on the matter of authority, which is so critical. There's no reason for us to equivocate on this. It's very clear. And I believe that we have come to the correct conclusion where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can do only those things which are authorized. Well, let's look at some New Testament evidence. I think the Old Testament really clarifies how God speaks, how God instructs, how God gives authority. We realize, of course, that the Old Testament is not our authority for religious action today. But we do see something about how God communicates with people, right, in those Old Testament examples. Well, what about the New Testament? What would we see in the New Testament? We're going to see the same thing in the New Testament. For instance, look at 2 John Verse 9, there's only one chapter in 2 John, so here we're talking about 2 John, verse 9. The King James Version says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now that's the familiar King James translation of that. 
But actually, if you look to some other English translations, it actually, it actually, I think, amplifies that considerably. The New American Standard Version says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The American Standard Version says, whosoever goeth onward. And the New International Version says, anyone who runs ahead. I just would ask you to compare these statements. I think they're really plain. Compare 2 John verse 9 and these various translations of it to those who would say, if it doesn't say not to, we can. That's a very popular mentality in the religious world. Sadly to say, some of our own brethren are embracing that mentality. If it doesn't say not to, we can. Does that, does that jive with 2 John verse 9? It really doesn't, does it? How about 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11? Again, very, all of this is so familiar to us. We know 1 Peter 4 verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, think about that. If you're going to speak, speak as the oracles of God. But God has been silent on this thing. Remember, our issue that we're kind of concerned about is some getting soft on the question of instrumental music. You can't can't read about the use of instrumental music in the worship of God in the New Testament among Christians in the first century. So if I'm going to speak, then, but I'm going to suggest it's okay to use instrumental music, then I'm not speaking as the oracles of God, right? I couldn't. I couldn't possibly be speaking as the oracles of God when we understand that God didn't, didn't authorize that. He was silent on the, the, the subject of using instruments of music. I couldn't be speaking as the oracles of God if God had been silent, right? I think that just goes without saying. So, speak as the oracles of God. Let's, let's, let's do a little application time here. A little direct application. Here's, here's a text that we often, the men often read this to us when we're taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, you know this. And you know what we do. Unleavened bread, fruit of the vine. That's what we're told to do, right? And, and so when someone says, what elements should we use in the Lord's Supper? We said unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Well, what about, what about something else? You know, could, why, don't, why don't we just, just for a change, just to liven things up a little bit, why don't we change those elements? Oh, no, no, no. I think almost everybody, now you'll find a few far out people who might disagree on this, but almost everybody said, absolutely not. We are not going to change those authorized elements of the Lord's Supper. And if you try to do so, we're going to object adamantly. Well, what, what's the principle there? God didn't say not to use something else. He did not say, for instance, you can't use Coke and pizza in the Lord's Supper. Now, again, I think you could probably find some very far out groups uh, in our religious world today who might be willing to do that. But principally speaking, 
everybody, all of our religious neighbors would agree with when it comes to taking the Lord's Now, we'd have some, we would have some differences with them about how the Lord's Supper is to be observed. But when it comes to the elements of the Lord's Supper, people are in pretty general agreement. Why, why, why would we insist on just these elements and not something else? God didn't say not to, right? But, but you see, see, in some instances, even our very liberal religious neighbors would agree with them. God was silent on any other element in the Lord's Supper, therefore we should not use them. They get the point when it comes to the Lord's Supper. All right, well, what about some other applications? In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he specifies the day upon which a collection is to be taken up, a free will offering of the saints, as we sometimes refer to it. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And so when it comes to a collection, a free will offering, that's to be done on the first day of the week. It's specified here. Now God did not say, don't do it on Tuesday, don't do it on Wednesday. Don't do it on Friday. By all means, never do it on Saturday. He didn't say anything about any other day of the week. Now, here we don't have as much agreement among our religious neighbors because in a lot of cases, if if you were to visit a, a midweek assembly of some denominational church, it's very possible that they would take up a collection on a day other than the Lord's Day, uh, the first day of the week, but we limit it here, right? We, we believe that we should limit that. God didn't say not to, but he did say what to do. And therefore, we believe that we should limit this practice to the day specified. Again, as we have a little more controversy on that question than, than the previous one about the elements of the Lord's Supper. But the same principle applies and our conclusion should be the same using the same kind of logic and reasoning. Okay, here's, here's the contentious one then, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. All right, here's the one that people really struggle with, music and worship. Uh, and, and again, sadly, scarily, even among some of our own, even among some of our own preaching brethren right here in Middle Tennessee, there's a little bit of equivocation on this point. Uh God didn't say not to use instrumental music. He, he, he didn't say not to. Therefore, we cannot assume that he would condemn people who do. Really? Really? Well, could we assume that God would condemn people who would substitute the elements of the Lord's Supper? I think we could. We'd say, that's wrong. That's just wrong. You cannot do that. God will not be pleased if you substitute the elements of the Lord's Supper. Well, if you can say that, then you have to also say on the question of music, God's been silent about instruments of music among in, in New Testament worship among Christians. He's been silent on the question of instruments of music, and it's the same point. It's exactly the same point. It's the same reasoning process. And, and the conclusion is silence does not authorize. Silence of God prohibits. It does not authorize. All right, finally, let me give you one more passage which I think might be the best one here in the New Testament on this question of silence and how we should react to silence when God is silent. In Hebrews chapter 7, 
verses 12 through 14. Braden read this for us earlier. Hebrews 7, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertain to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Obviously, the he in this passage is Jesus, right? And so if he's going to, if, if Jesus is going to be a priest, there's going to have to be a change in the priesthood. Because under that Old Testament law of Moses, uh, no, no other tribe. You can't, Jesus was from another tribe. Jesus was out of the tribe of Judah. He says it's, he couldn't be, a, he couldn't be a priest under that Old Testament system because he's from, Ju- he was of the tribe of Judah. And the priests of the Old Testament were exclusively of the tribe of Levi. The Hebrew writer says, It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses... No, Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood and the tribe of Judah. He certainly didn't say people of the tribe of Judah can be priests. He didn't say that. Certainly he didn't say that. But what he also didn't say is... Nobody from Judah can be a priest. He was silent on that. He spake nothing about priests and Judah. He didn't have to, right? Because he specified that priests must come from the tribe of Levi. And so the Hebrew writer here is is drawing the point that we're making in our lesson tonight. Silence does not authorize. God God didn't say not to. God, God didn't say absolutely no priest can come from the tribe of Judah. He didn't say that. He didn't say anything about Judah and priesthood. He did say priests must come from Levi. And so when he specified that, that was enough. In chapter 8, verse 4 of Hebrews, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he should not be a priest. He couldn't be a priest. Why? Jesus could not be a priest on earth. He couldn't be a priest under that Old Testament system because of the silence of God. Not because God said not to, but because God was silent on that question. Uh, The right conclusion, then, I think, is the one that we specified. Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can do only those things which are authorized. Again, this is not new information to us. We have talked about this before. Uh, uh, It is important to be reminded, and it's kind of scary to know that some of our own brethren... Uh, are missing this point uh, and are actually teaching otherwise. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation as we bring the lesson to a close. As we sing this song, we'll be asking everybody here to make sure your life is right with God. If you need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If we can assist you in that, we want to do so. If we can help you with study to make that decision, we'd be glad to do so. If you're a Christian in need of the prayers of the saints, let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.